Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. The year was 1500. Jacob and Elizabeth Neufer, a young couple in Turgau, Switzerland, were undergoing the trial of their lives. Elizabeth had been in labor for days. Their local midwife had been unable to deliver the child and had called on several other wise women to assist in the birth. Nearly a dozen women had attempted to deliver the child to no avail. Jacob, a swineherd, was experiencing waves of panic as his wife and unborn child continued to be in danger. Several days into the difficult labor, Jacob Neufer petitioned the authorities for permission to remove the child surgically through the abdomen. This surgery was a known one, but was most often performed only after the mother's death. In his occupation as a swineherd, Jacob had performed countless genital surgeries on his pigs. He was an expert gelder. He was convinced that he could deliver his child abdominally so that both his wife and child would survive. For this, there was no precedent. Most observers must have believed that Jacob was about to murder his wife and that his child might already be dead. Few people would have had confidence in his success, but Jacob was desperate. Using his gelding tools, and we should say gelding is basically cutting off the balls of pigs. (laughs) castrating pigs yeah Yeah. (laughs) essentially for for those who are not animal husbandry inclined um so using his gelding tools jacob made an incision in his wife's abdomen with no anesthesia and rudimentary sanitation to deliver his infant daughter shockingly the historical record asserts that both mother and child survived the operation Even more shocking, Elizabeth is recorded as having five more children, all delivered vaginally. Their baby, born of cesarean, also thrived. This is the first recorded incident of a cesarean section performed where both the mother and child survived the procedure. Or is it? You'll have to keep listening to find out. Today, we're discussing the surprisingly long history of cesarean birth in Western medicine. Now, before we do our little thing, I want to say a disclaimer right at the top of this show. 
Um, this episode was a really difficult one to write, and it includes graphic stories of maternal death, infant loss, and infertility. So if those issues are upsetting to you, please skip this one, um, or at the very least, use caution moving forward. I'm Marissa. And I'm Sarah. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Hey, you! Yes, you, listening! Thank you for listening to this podcast. And to our amazing Patreon supporters, Lauren, Edward, Denise, Maddie, Maggie, Danielle, Lisa, Agnes, Iris, Maria, Colin, Susan, Peggy, and Jessica. Thank you for choosing to patronize. We are nothing without you. Listener, if you are not yet a patron of the show, it is easy. Check us out at patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. There are many things to doubt in this story about Jacob and Elizabeth Neufer. It was not recorded until 82 years after the event purportedly took place. It claims that 13 midwives, a very unlucky and mythologized number, assisted um, Elizabeth during her ordeal and that none were able to deliver her. It's also quite doubtful that even if a rudimentary cesarean had itself been successful in 1500, that the woman would have been able to safely deliver subsequent children without a uterine rupture. We don't have details as to how Jacob finished the surgery, but most historians agree that it wasn't until the 18th century that surgeons suggested using sutures to seal the uterus after the operation, and even then the suggestion was not put into practice for another hundred years. Some historians have suggested that perhaps Elizabeth's pregnancy was a full-term extra-uterine pregnancy. Jeez. Yeah, really. That's very, very rare. Very rare, but it it can happen. Hmm. Um, It's a very rare form of ectopic pregnancy that occasionally, very, very, very occasionally, results in a viable fetus. Um, If this were the case, Elizabeth's baby would have grown outside of her uterus, allowing for the baby to be cut out without incising the uterine wall itself. Um, This would have explained at least part of Jacob's success and Elizabeth's subsequent fertility. In any case, there are several historical records that support the cesarean birth, so even if some of the details have been mythologized, the operation may have actually happened. Jacob and Elizabeth Neufer's story has been repeated many times as the first known cesarean birth with a happy outcome. But in 2016, obstetrician and medical historian Dr. Antonin Parizek of Charles University published a paper positing an even earlier case. The pregnancy in question was that of Beatrice of Bourbon. Beatrice was a 14-year-old noblewoman who, in 1336, became the second wife of King John of Bohemia. In February 1337, the teenaged Beatrice gave birth to her only child, Wenceslas. The birth of Wenceslas was not immediately documented, but we have two letters written by Beatrice describing the birth. One was a diplomatic letter to the city of Colon, and the other was a formal birth announcement sent to regional courts. In both letters, Beatrice took great pains to assure her readers that her son was born, quote, without breaching our body. 
All surviving contemporaneous sources treat the birth similarly with secretive and defensive phrasing. One century later, surviving sources are more direct, uh, acknowledging Wenceslas' cesarean birth. For example, one early 15th century chronicle called Brabantski Yitzin repeats Wenceslas' cesarean birth as fact. The author marvels that his mother's wound healed. The archdeacon of the Verdun Cathedral, Ricard Vosborg Antiquites de la Gaulle Belgique, writes something similar. Quote, At the birth, his mother Beatrice was opened up without her dying. End quote. Lastly, Tomas Pasina of Chekarad, who writes in his Mars Moravicus, Quote, John had a son named Wenceslaus, taken from the Queen Beatrice of Bourbon, or rather from the maternal womb, without endangering the mother. Rarely such a lucky example of recovery or healthy fertility, end quote. So, like the case of Jacob and Elizabeth Neufer, direct references to cesarean birth appear only after their deaths. But Perizek argues there are several reasons to believe Wenceslaus's birth was an abdominal birth. For one, Beatrice never gave birth to another child, which one would expect from a woman whose uterus had been compromised. Second, Beatrice's coronation was significantly delayed, possibly because she was recovering from a surgical birth. Third, Prague was, at the time, the medical center of the world, and the physicians who attended Beatrice would have been the most educated and skilled practitioners available. Right, so I mean, if it was going to happen, it was probably going to happen there. Um, But lastly... A detailed analysis of her letters suggests that she had a reason to portray Wenceslas's birth as a vaginal birth, which is strange, considering this should have been a time when vaginal birth was the only method of birth. Beatrice's letters about the birth include strange wording about her body that has never been seen before in birth announcements. All contemporaneous birth announcements take special care to describe the health of the child and systematically avoid discussion about the mother and her body. But Beatrice assures readers that her son was born vaginally and that her body was intact. This suggests that there were reasons for her peers to think otherwise. People don't typically deny things unless they've been accused of them. Accusations of cesarean birth may have given Beatrice cause to worry. Perizek believes a cesarean birth would have been perceived as a monstrous birth in Bohemian royal culture and religious doctrine. In the Bohemian church, the royal body was considered inviolate, the embodiment of their undefiled souls and prerogative to rule. Beatrice's strange letters demonstrate her desperate attempts to portray Wenceslas's birth as a typical vaginal birth. Doing so would have protected his royal birthright, but it also would have protected Beatrice. She had given birth before her coronation, and she would have wanted to portray herself as worthy of the crown. A monstrous birth and damaged body might have disqualified her. Some historians, including Perizek, believe that Beatrice's cesarean, if it occurred at all, was accidentally successful. Beatrice was almost certainly thought to be dead or near death. If this had been the case, her attending physicians would have worked quickly in an attempt to save the baby by cutting her open, or at the very least, to extract the baby in order to baptize him. It's not inconceivable that this may have happened and that Beatrice's status had been mistaken. Perhaps she was merely unconscious and gained consciousness during or shortly after the operation, which sounds like a f***ing nightmare. Ugh, yeah, really. <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> 
This scenario brings us to an important point. For the vast majority of its history, cesarean birth was a post-mortem operation. Evidence suggests that Jacob Neufer performed surgery on his wife in hopes that both she and her child would survive. But this hope, if it had indeed been Jacob's, would have been almost supernatural, a truly desperate desire. In almost all cases before the 19th century, cesarean birth was a dark and sad procedure, most often resulting in the death of both mother and child. Occasionally, the infant survived the procedure, but only by a few hours or days. Keep in mind, there was only one way to feed a newborn whose mother had died, wet nursing. If it survived the cesarean birth, the fragile infant would have been given over to the care of a wet nurse. But this was only if one with sufficient milk could be found close by. Many babies died of dehydration and the days following birth for lack of a nurse. In some cases, it was clear that the mother's health was good, but that the infant was stuck, dead, or dying. In these cases, another form of surgical birth was attempted, a craniotomy. This is the um, situation that we mentioned in my episode on um, childbirth, where labor would stall because the the baby was stuck and without or before the advent of, of forceps or in a birth that was unattended by someone who could use forceps, really the only option was craniotomy. This procedure was performed with sharp tools, which surgically crushed the fetus's head and removed its entire body from the woman's uterus. The fetus was essentially disarticulated and then pulled out piece by piece. This procedure had better outcomes for the mother and could often save her life, but it always resulted in the fetus's death. These dark and sad outcomes shrouded the cesarean operation and other forms of surgical birth in morbid mystery for centuries. Millennia, really, but it was too many M's, so I I took it out. (laughs) Um, It's not surprising, then, that a robust mythology formed around the operation and the occasional live births that it made possible. Let's start with the most glaringly obvious myth. The myth that Julius Caesar was born by Caesarian and that his birth is what gave the procedure its name. Right, right, right. Yes. This will burst the bubble of so many BuzzFeed articles, I feel like. (laughs) Um, But it's just not true. Um, The myth derives from a 10th century mistranslation of Pliny's Natural History, Book 7, Chapter 7. This passage actually says that Caesar's family got their name because its founding member was cut Cato, in Latin, from his mother's womb. So it wasn't Julius Caesar, but a forebear who was cut from his mother's womb. And the procedure wasn't named after him, but rather he after the procedure. Um, Get it together, medieval translators. (laughs) There's so many things that are in our, like, general understanding that that come from mistranslations. Right. (laughs) Of, like, ancient texts. Specifically in the medieval period. So it's like... Oh, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um... So the term cesarean comes from a Roman legal code called the Lex Caesar. The Lex Caesar was one of many royal laws that were issued in the 8th century BCE, and it prescribed that an infant should be cut from his mother's womb should she die before birth. Mm, that makes sense. It, mostly so they could be buried separately and that kind of thing. Even though Pliny was mistranslated for centuries, his story is itself dubious. 
The first in the line to take up the name Caesar was Sextus Julius Caesar, who lived around 200 BCE. There is no documentation that he was born by Caesarian, and there are many other reasons why the name Caesar may have been added to his other names. Etymologists have suggested that a member of the family may have been born with a luxuriant shock of hair called a Caesaris, or that they had blue or bluish-gray eyes called oculi caesi. Either of these seems more likely than a cesarean birth that resulted in a live baby, <laughs> though you know it, it's technically possible. It would not, however, have been possible for Julius Caesar himself to have been born by cesarean since his mother, Aurelia, outlived him. There's some debate about whether cesarean operations were something other than a post-mortem operation in the ancient world. The 12th century Jewish scholar Maimonides wrote that the Romans knew how to perform the cesarean operation without killing the mother, but that it was rarely done. This is very unlikely, however, since contemporaneous physicians, such as those in the Hippocratic school and the great Galen of Pergamon, failed to address the procedure at all. Galen mentions it one time in his compiled works as something that he had read about but never experienced in his real life, writing, quote, the way in which the abdomen of the pregnant woman must be cut open and the child helped out while it is still fixed to the uterus is not of our invention, but it has been described by many of the early authors, end quote. Apparently, none of those early authors' works have survived. Right. We have, like, we know that a very, very small percentage of classical works survived, so just because there's no documentation of it does not mean it didn't happen. It's right. just that... There's no documentation, so we can't really like, say for sure because historians work from documents. So, right. Most medical historians and historically minded physicians agree that prior to the 19th century, an incision to the abdomen would have been deadly in virtually all cases. If the patient did not hemorrhage, which was very likely with no cauterization or clamping, they almost certainly would have died from shock, also likely with no anesthesia and ineffective sedation. Or, they could have died from secondary infection, which was almost certain, with little or no antiseptic practice. At this point in history, cesareans were acts of desperation, meant to sacrifice the mother in order to baptize the infant or bury the mother and infant separately. If the mother's death was imminent, midwives were trained to make an incision in the mother's abdomen to retrieve the fetus. Few midwives expected the fetus to survive, but they performed the operation all the same in order to baptize the infant, ideally before death. Even if the infant died prior to being extricated, the midwife performed a post-mortem baptism in hopes of saving the poor infant's soul. These grim outcomes are confirmed time and again by the cesareans that are best documented prior to the 19th century. For example, the Catalan saint Raymond Nonatus was born in 1204 by cesarean. His mother did not survive the grisly procedure. He was given the name Nonatus, literally meaning not born, because of his abdominal birth. Likewise, in 1316, Scotland's Robert II was born via cesarean, and the operation resulted in the death of his mother, Marjorie Bruce. Many suspect that Robert's cesarean birth inspired the character Macduff in Shakespeare's Macbeth. As the story goes, Macbeth is given the prophecy, none of woman born shall harm Macbeth. Initially, he believes that this means that he's safe from harm, until he learns that Macduff was, quote, from his mother's womb untimely ripped, 
meaning that he was not of woman born. Right. And I mean, this isn't quite technical. I know. Like it doesn't (laughs) doesn't quite make sense to me. It's almost like women are being boiled down to their vaginas. And if you're not born out of a vagina, you're not born out of a woman. But it's like, you're still born out of a woman. Like I don't. Although I I will say, yeah, I completely agree. But I will say that I um I was I'm kind of a Shakespeare nerd, but I am not. I wouldn't say that I'm an expert by any means. And one of the the plays that I had never read or seen was Macduff or Macbeth. <laughs> yeah. So Avril and I went to Shakespeare in the Park a couple years ago when they were doing Macbeth, and I will tell you that I actually was like. <gasps> Yeah. When that was like revealed that like not of a woman born because I just I didn't I was must have been like the last person in literally the world to not know the twists of Macbeth. Um, and so I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so clever. Shakespeare. Good job. <laughs> so, um, that's like the only thing about Shakespeare that I remember. Basically, That's so funny. Um, so. All Shakespeare aside, so very rarely um, did a cesarean result in a live birth, as I've kind of mentioned before. Children who were born as a result of the postmortem operation were called caizones, which is not of women born, the unborn or the fortunate. They were called all of these different things. Um, as is alluded to in Macbeth, caizones were very rare and in various ways marked by their unconventional birth. Thus, pre-Victorian people born via cesarean carried with them a stigma or mythical status of sorts. Despite the early modern period's rapid growth in anatomical dissection and scientific medicine, safe cesarean births were not achieved. Vesalius's De Corporis Humani Fabrica, published in 1543, sparked widespread interest in human anatomy. This anatomical revolution laid the groundwork for a new field of operative obstetrics that grew in the following centuries, but the cesarean operation remained theoretical. We do, however, have evidence that the operation was discussed more widely by medical scientists in the early modern period. In 1581, the French physician Francois Rousset published, here's the title of what he published, get ready, get ready, it's 1581, everyone. Oh, man. I know. Quote, the extraction of the child through a lateral incision of the abdomen and the uterus of a pregnant woman who cannot otherwise give birth, and that without endangering the life of the one or the other, and without preventing subsequent fertility, end quote. Um, Early modern titles are very extra. It's ridiculous. I just, I hate it. Um, It's like almost a whole abstract, but just as a title. Um, So most historians agree that Rousset's book marks a turning point in the history of the cesarean because it shifted from being a purely cultural phenomenon to being a question of medical science. Before Rousset's work, cesarean was performed for several reasons. Legal statutes pertaining to burial and baptism of the child were the two most common, and neither of them were medical. Rousset thought about cesarean differently. According to him, cesareans were indicated whenever fetuses were large, malformed, or dead. In the case of twins, malrepresentation, or if the mother was very old, very young, narrow-hipped, or inelastic. She just wasn't that elastic. <laughs> not um, not I stretchy. I don't enough. know like, what that really means. Just, <laughs> just a very not stretchy woman. Physician Samuel Lurie writes that, quote, these indications reflect the emerging awareness of maternal and fetal safety, end quote. And so I want to add that, off the cuff sort of, that up to this point, yes, cesarean was sort of mythological and 
a cultural phenomenon that people were like, oh my God, he was born by his mother being slid open and she died. You know, it was very dramatic and very rare. Up to this point, it is still incredibly rare and still very dramatic, but we're thinking of it more in terms of, hey, could we do this one day? It's futuristic, you know, because it's not it's not happening yet, mm-hmm. but there's still the idea that, hey, this is a medical problem and not just like right. a cultural phenomenon. In another one of these published discussions about cesareans, the operation received a new name, the cesarean section. Jacques Guimot's 1598 treatise on midwifery used the term section, and from that point forward, the operation was routinely called a cesarean section rather than a cesarean operation. Despite the work of Rousset and Guimot, cesarean outcomes remained grim, resulting in close to 100% mortality rate for mothers. Eventually, medical scientists lost hope of ever being able to perform a cesarean that left both mother and baby alive. Many mainstream obstetricians regarded the procedure as barbarous. Francois Morisot, the most famous obstetrician of the 17th century, stated, quote, I do not know that there was ever any law, Christian or civil, in which both ordained the martyring and killing of the mother to save the child. Right. So it was kind of an ethical issue of, I mean, I, I you know, can you even imagine? Basically, if you were opting for a C-section, you are basically saying, okay, I'm, we are sacrificing the mother to possibly save mm-hmm. the child and probably not even. Right. P- big, big emphasis on possibly because they had no way right. of knowing. Uh-huh. No they way of knowing There was no whether... fetal monitoring. Right. 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 During the 1600s, operative obstetrics advanced in other ways with the advent of forceps and ever-improving tools to improve outcomes of craniotomies. But the safe and effective cesarean section remained elusive. We have scattered records of cesarean attempts through the 1600s, but they mostly took place in remote areas without access to trained personnel and equipped facilities. Some scholars believe that these remote areas had better surgical outcomes than one might have had in a hospital because of lower incidence of infection in the countryside. Some historians have also argued that remote areas without trained professionals tended to have fewer options to try before turning to the last-ditch effort, cesarean. This would theoretically mean that people attending births in remote areas would turn to cesarean sooner rather than later, at a time when the mother and fetus were in less distress. This may have accounted for some happier outcomes for cesareans in remote areas during the 1600s. Still, this optimism is probably unwarranted. During the 1600s, surgeons avoided uterine closure, typically done with sutures, in favor of leaving the uterine wound open before closing the abdomen. This would have certainly increased the likelihood of hemorrhage or uterine rupture in future pregnancies. They did this for two reasons. One, they believed that natural uterine contractions would promote the necessary healing of the tissues. And two, they feared that if they introduced sutures into the body where they could not be removed, that infection would necessarily follow. And they had a point. As suture material, they used braided animal intestines, or if you were fancy, maybe silk. And with limited means of sterilizing those materials, infection probably would have been really common. During the 1700s, medical scientists continued to develop their surgical practice and research. They performed craniotomies, embryectomies, ovariotomies, ovariectomies, hysterectomies, etc., but their cesarean attempts were few and successes even fewer. 
They did, however, begin keeping meticulous records of their attempts, and towards the end of the century started using statistical studies to improve surgical outcomes. One record suggests that between 1787 and 1876, a span of almost 90 years, not one woman in all of Paris survived a cesarean section. It's unclear how many of them were attempted in the first place. Isn't that crazy? Like, I can't can't emphasize enough how poor the outcomes were. Yeah. We're used to thinking of, like, poor surgical outcomes as being minute in comparison. We're talking, this is literally a death sentence, you know? Yeah. Uh, Similar to the great origin debates, or as April says, the great origin debates (laughs) um, with, with syphilis, which were very political, so too are the great origin debates tied to cesarean section. The late 18th and early 19th centuries marked a time when European nation states built global empires. One consequence of this rampant imperialism was their rapid assimilation of indigenous cultures and expertise. We've seen this time and again in our episodes. For example, I discussed the use of Native American uh, culture and expertise in the smokeless tobacco episode. Um, Some historians argue that European advances in cesarean section were preceded by indigenous African successes with the surgery, and that perhaps their medical expertise was assimilated by the European empires who subjugated them. There is some evidence that cesareans were practiced successfully in Uganda and Tanzania by indigenous healers in the 1800s. As it turns out, these claims appear to be overblown and, frankly, a little dubious. Uh, Amateur historian and disability rights activist Aradia Windham runs a blog called The Baby Historian, and it's um, super good, by the way. Um, She has a blog post um, about media literacy and the arguments about indigenous African C-section that I think is really genius. Um, So please know that I'm borrowing heavily from her here. I searched up all the sources that she used. You searched um, them up? I searched them up. (laughs) uh, As my kids would say, (laughs) all... All on my own, so I I uh, uh, checked the sources, as a historian does, um, but she does a really good job of kind of laying out how these sort of myths happen, or maybe not myths, but sort of overemphasized, embellished mm-hmm. um, histories happen. I couldn't tell the story as well as her, so I'm not <laughs> I'm not going to try. So essentially, she calls out a Facebook post that's written by a non-historian named Juniper Russo, and it's a public Facebook post. Um, and in this Facebook post, Russo claims that cesarean sections were invented by women practitioners in Uganda. Her claims were shared far and wide by doulas, history geeks, and racial justice activists everywhere. She posted this during Black History Month, I believe. She makes many claims about this and does not cite any sources. Anyway, Wyndham tracks down one of her sources, which is an essay written for the U.S. National Library of Medicine, um, which also contains some dubious claims. Um, I found it myself in my research and was kind of like, when I was reading it. And Wyndham also tracks down all of the original sources um, that were used in that source, and she explains how erroneous interpretations occur. First, it occurred in this Library uh, of Medicine essay, and then they were extrapolated even further into this Facebook post. Um, Anyway, here's the story. 
1880, anthropologist Robert Falcon visited Central Africa and was given the opportunity to witness several births. Most of the time, he wasn't invited. He writes, quote, Many a time I have been denied admission during a labor, but I must confess that not infrequently I have gone by stealth and acted peeping Tom, which gross. <laughs> That's awful. But anyway, one day he was invited to come, quote, see a woman cut open. He enthusiastically agreed and he witnessed the following event. And this is a quote. As you do, think about it. Want to come see a woman cut open? Oh, yeah. I enthusiastically agree. absolutely. 100%. I'm there. Um, So the rest of this is a quote from from, um, Robert Falcon. So far as I know, Uganda is the only country in Central Africa where abdominal suction is practiced with the hope of saving both mother and child. The operation is performed by men and is sometimes successful. At any rate, one case came under my observation in which both survived. The knife used is represented in figure 19. It was performed in 1879 at Kahura. The patient was a fine, healthy-looking young woman of about 20 years of age. This was her first pregnancy. I was not permitted to examine her and only entered the hut just as the operation was about to begin. The woman lay upon an inclined bed, the head of which was placed against the side of the hut. She was liberally supplied with banana wine and was in a state of semi-intoxication. Not for nothing, but banana wine sounds f***ing atrocious. I know, I know. She was perfectly naked. A band of mubugu or bark cloth fastened her thorax to the bed. Another band of cloth fastened down her thighs. And a man held her ankles. Another man standing on her right side steadied her abdomen. The operator stood as I entered the hut on her left side, holding his knife aloft with his right hand and muttering an incantation. This being done, he washed his hands and the patient's abdomen first with banana wine and then with water. So, um, Ugh, I know. So Wyndham points out that this was hardly evidence of germ theory. And this is one of the things that Russo implies. Russo in that, that Facebook, remember we're talking about like a Facebook post that, that, um, claims that, that Ugandan women invented C-section. Um, one of the things that she kind of implies is, oh, like they were really good at, you know, preventing infection as if they kind of understood germ theory. But when you look at the the, the primary source, he washed the patient's abdomen with wine and then with water again. So if the wine's going to kill germs, fine, um, but then they're going to recontaminate the area with the contaminated water afterwards. So, right. um Ugandan practitioners, even if they used banana wine to, to, on the stomach, they were probably using it for ritualistic purposes and not in order to kill infection or, you know, to prevent infection. Um, but Falcon's story continues. Remember, this is Falcon writing about what he experienced in Uganda. Quote, then having uttered a shrill cry, which was taken up by a small crowd assembled outside the hut, He proceeded to make a rapid cut in the middle line, commencing a little above the pubis and ending just below the umbilicus. The whole abdominal wall and part of the uterine wall were severed by this incision, and the liquor amnii escaped. So the amniotic fluid, I imagine. Um, A few bleeding points in the abdominal wall were touched with a red-hot iron by an assistant. The operator next rapidly finished the incision in the uterine wall... His assistant held the abdominal walls apart with both hands, and as soon as the uterine wall was divided, he hooked it up also with two fingers. 
the child was next rapidly removed and given to another assistant after the cord had been cut. And then the operator, dropping the knife, seized the contracting uterus with both hands and gave it a squeeze or two. He next put his right hand in the uterine cavity through the incision and with two or three fingers dilated the cervix uteri from within outwards. He then cleared the uterus of clots and the placenta, which had by this time had become detached, removing it through the abdominal wound. His assistant endeavored, but not very successfully, to prevent the escape of the intestines through the wound. (laughs) The red-hot iron was next used to check some further hemorrhage from the abdominal wound, but I noticed that it was very sparingly applied. Oh, God, that sounds horrible. Yeah. Falcon continues... All this time, the chief surgeon was keeping up firm pressure on the uterus, which he continued to do till it was firmly contracted. No sutures were put into the uterine wall. The assistant, who had held the abdominal walls, now slipping his hands to each extremity of the wound, and a porous grass mat was placed over the wound and secured there. The bands which fastened the woman down were cut, and she was gently turned to the edge of the bed and then over into the arms of the assistants so that the fluid in the abdominal cavity could drain away onto the floor. She was then replaced in her former position, and the mat having been removed, the edges of the wound, i.e. the peritoneum, were brought into close apposition. Seven thin iron spikes, well polished, like acupression needles, being used for the purpose, and fastened by string made from bark cloth. A paste prepared by chewing two different roots and spitting the pulp into a bowl was then thickly plastered over the wound, and a banana leaf warmed over the fire being placed on top of that, and then finally a firm bandage of mbugu cloth completed the operation. According to Falcon's notes, which we've just read to you, obviously we haven't read them to you in their entirety, but that's the main event, um... The woman had a fever within 48 hours of the surgery, and her milk... Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Duh. She did. Um, and her milk never came in. So she had a friend nurse the child. She did, however, recover as far as he knew. Quote, 11 days after the operation, the wound was entirely healed, and the woman seemed quite comfortable. The uterine discharge was healthy. This was all I saw of the case, and as I left on the 11th day, the child had a slight wound on the right shoulder. This was dressed with pulp and healed in four days. After hearing this story, it is tempting to wax poetically about the merits of indigenous medicine. There were many, of course. But it's going a bit too far to imagine a long-held tradition of cesarean sections in remote Central African communities. There just isn't enough there. This doesn't mean that it's not true, just that we need more information before we can make that claim. What we can say for sure is that this particular C-section happened in Uganda in 1880 and that the mother survived at least 11 days. But the claim that African women invented C-sections and practiced them happily for centuries is just currently unsupported. Right. And you'll note that in the story that Falcon gives, it was men who who, who right. did this surgery. Right. Um women may have assisted or like been there but it was not like um indigenous midwives who were performing this surgery so this is i'm kind of showing this as as a quick tutorial on media literacy i think that it's so easy 
to look at how other people interpret primary sources and to just run with that. Um, and this is why it's so important to, you know, look at primary sources and secondary sources, especially if something's really seems kind of outlandish or something you've never heard before. Um, it's always worth kind of looking at the primary source. So mm-hmm. um, even though Juniper Russo's claims are somewhat dubious, it's likely that European physicians' experiences in their imperial travels did influence their medical practice and research. There's a long history of European imperial powers colonizing indigenous medicine and bodies as well as their communities. Such might have been the case for physician James Miranda Stuart Barry, who performed the first authenticated C-section within the British Empire. We'll be doing a biographical episode about Barry in the future. Um, he was a fascinating person. Barry is best remembered in history for being assigned female at birth, but living his entire life as a man, presumably, or as it's told, um, in order to go to medical school. Barry was trained at the University of Edinburgh Medical School, at the time, number one in the world. Um, and he was trained in genital surgery, specifically in hernias. Shortly after passing his exams, he joined the British Army and worked as an army doctor for several decades, eventually achieving the rank of Inspector General of British Hospitals. He traveled all over the British Empire, serving as a colonial physician and a medical authority in Cape Town, South Africa, St. Helena, Jamaica, Malta, and Canada. During his tenure as medical inspector in Cape Town in the 18-teens and early 20s, Barry revolutionized the city's medical facilities and culture, introducing cutting-edge sanitation techniques and modern facilities. He performed the first authenticated successful cesarean section within the British Empire. In late July 1826, a woman from an old colonial family, Wilhelmina Munich, went into labor, and it was going poorly. After days of no progress and extreme pain, her husband, Thomas Munich, called for Dr. Barry. Barry was known to be an impressive accoucheur, which is like a birther, um, but his reputation had faltered somewhat in recent months in the Cape. Upon assessing Mrs. Munich, Barry made the gutsy move of opting for a cesarean birth. For Thomas Munich, this must have filled him with dread, right? So he would have known that neither his wife nor his child we're likely to survive the operation. Again, like you said at the beginning, what a what a moment of just sheer desperation that must mm-hmm. have been. We know that at the time he performed the surgery, Barry had never seen the operation done in real life. He had only read essays on the procedure written by his former mentor, Dr. James Hamilton at Edinburgh. Nonetheless, Barry performed his ritualistic hygienic practices for which he'd become known in the Munich's kitchen. That is where Barry cut open Mrs. Munich's abdomen, separated her muscles, cut gently into the uterine wall, and extracted her writhing fetus, followed by the placenta. Through Barry's decisive action and skilled work, both mother and baby survived the operation. Under his care, they continued to do well during the dangerous post-operative period. Barry refused to be compensated for his heroic feat, but asked instead that the Munichs name their baby after him. (laughs) The lucky infant was named James Barry Munich. Which is kind of cute, but... um, That is cute. It's worth keeping in mind that this was like a Hail Mary, a one in a million chance that this would have happened. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And Barry's like fastidiousness in terms of like hygiene and kind of being a forebear. Um, I mean, this was before germ theory, but he was still obsessed with hygiene. Um, that obviously would have bettered the chances, but still very unlikely. 
While Barry performed the surgery on an elite European colonial, and it's fair to say that he drew from his Edinburgh training, Barry may have owed some of his success to indigenous and formerly enslaved midwives. The historical record's not very specific here, because it never is when it comes to the um, indigenous experience under colonialism. Um, but we know that in the early 19th century, Cape Town was only starting to grow into something more than a frontier town. Colonial physicians uh, in the Cape did not have the luxury of ignoring or shunning midwives like their counterparts in the metropole. Barry was known to cooperate with the Cape's midwives who were either indigenous or imported from Malaysia. At least one was a formerly enslaved woman named Hannah, whose freedom was purchased by Barry himself. It's unclear, but entirely likely, that Barry assimilated indigenous and or Malaysian knowledge into his surgical practice. Despite Dr. Barry's success in Cape Town, C-section mortality rates were still appallingly high in the remainder of the 19th century, somewhere near 75%. In the first half of the century, cesareans were reserved for mothers whose labors had not progressed for days and only after there were signs of intrauterine fetal death. This means that by the time cesareans were considered by providers, the mother was already in danger of sepsis, hemorrhage, and blood clots. This can account for the extremely high mortality rate, despite incredible surgical advancement and impressive expertise on the part of the surgeon. But this was about to change in the middle of the 19th century, with the introduction of revolutionary anesthetics like ether and chloroform. For more on ether and chloroform during birth, listen to Sarah's episode from last week. Um, these drugs sedated and anesthetized much more effectively than the opium and alcohol that had been used in previous centuries. They also made it possible to perform C-sections without the risk of shock, which was often the surgeon's most immediate concern when C-sections were attempted. Caesarean attempts also would have benefited from 19th century advancements in antiseptic techniques. During the late 1860s, British surgeon Joseph Lister perfected a new antiseptic system using carbolic acid to disinfect the operating theater, surgeon's hands, instruments, and wound dressings. He had this, like, it was like a... Um, a perfume mister that he kind of like poof, 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 like all over everything. Um, Lister's techniques were highly criticized because they were inconvenient and carbolic acid was a caustic irritant. So when he poofed it on people, it like hurt them. <laughs> but at least they weren't covered in germs. Adding insult to injury, germ theory on which Lister based his techniques was really only in its infancy. Between 1860 and 1864, French chemist and microbiologist Louis Pasteur experimented with the idea that microbial pathogens caused infection. During this phase of experimentation, Pasteur proved that purpural fever, remember that's if you've listened to the, the episode before this, uh, my episode on childbirth, you'll remember that purpural fever was that really common uterine infection that happened to women after they gave birth. Um, Pasteur proved that that purpural fever was caused by the pathogen pyogenic vibrio in the blood and that boric acid could be used to kill those pathogens during childbirth and confinement. While the news was welcomed by some, many medical scientists remained skeptical and the general public even more so. Think about how bizarre it would have been to learn that the cause of infectious disease was tiny organisms invading and reproducing inside your body. It must have been a really wild-sounding idea um, to a world that was unfamiliar with microbes and 
most people wouldn't have been able to see them. So, like, if you can really... It sounds right. like, oh, what idiots. Germ theory didn't take off right away. It's, like, because it's so f***ing crazy if you really think about it. It's wild. Right. <laughs> so this was a very dangerous time for C-sections, despite this advancement. This is often the case following path-breaking advancements in medical science. There's a period of risk-taking that goes sideways because medical scientists have enough knowledge to make dangerous attempts, but not enough experience to make those attempts successful. The improved sedation and antiseptic systems at mid-century this is mid-19th century, remember, meant that doctors had more enthusiasm and more tools at their disposal to perform what the French came to call accouchement forcé, or violent delivery. And I just use the French word not to be fancy, but because a lot of English-speaking physicians used it as well to, I don't know, they like to use French words to sound fancy, I don't know. Right. During this experimental time, doctors used things like forced dilation of the cervix, Increased use of forceps, episiotomy, symphysiotomy, or pubiotomy. Listen to Avril's episode on symphysiotomy in this series if you haven't already. Um, and these were all super violent mm -hmm. interventions that often had yeah, really yeah. poor outcomes. These violent interventions increased, obviously, maternal mortality from hemorrhage and sepsis because despite the rapid advancement of medical science during this time, so many of the issues with performing successful surgical births just had not yet been resolved. For example, by 1870, obstetricians still believed that uterine closure was unnecessary. Fleetwood Churchill, a British obstetrician, recorded in 1872, quote, no sutures are required in the uterus. As it contracts, the wound would be reduced one to two inches and the lips will come into opposition if it be healthy. So they just thought that it would essentially, when it shrunk down, it would close up and it would kind of heal itself eventually. Right. And... Probably in some cases it did. Right. But then when the woman got pregnant again, and remember this is before reliable birth control, right. she would have a uterine rupture. Right. Or or it would be, she would have huge scar tissue that would probably interfere with her ability to, you know, contract. To yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So the first obstetrician to resolve this issue did so in 1876. So remember I mentioned earlier that in the 1700s, they were like, maybe we should use sutures. And people were like, nah, like, that's, no, I mean, that's just crazy. And to be fair, it kind of was crazy. They were like, let's put this dirty stuff inside your body and leave it there and not take it out. I mean, really, probably sepsis was very likely. So it took 100 years for people to really figure out how to actually do this. The first obstetrician resolved this issue, uh, but at extraordinary cost to his patients. Eduardo Porro, professor of obstetrics at Pavia in Italy, advocated hysterectomies following all cesarean births. Porro was a cesarean pioneer in Italy. Prior to his practice, not a single woman had survived a cesarean in Pavia. Poro first performed the procedure on Giulia Cavallini, a 25-year-old woman with dwarfism whose pelvic configuration was incompatible with vaginal birth. She had a specific kind of dwarfism that made her pelvis particularly kind of small and weirdly angled. Poro sedated Cavallini with chloroform and made a vertical incision in her abdomen. After removing her infant son, he amputated her uterus. That's the word they used. <laughs> um, Cavallini's recovery was rocky, but she eventually did recover. Both she and her son survived the procedure. Poro published the results of Cavallini's case in 1876. And in the published 
paper, which is now freely available because um, it's past copyright, there are pictures of her postpartum body. Mm. Within the next several years, dozens of children were born using the Poro method. Around 58% of the mothers survived and 86% of the fetuses survived. By today's standards, these statistics appear very grim. But this was a considerable improvement from the 75% to 100% mortality rates calculated for previous decades. So even though Poro was able to reduce maternal mortality, his method resulted in permanent infertility. Moreover, the procedure was still risky, so most obstetricians who used the Poro method did so when there was no other choice. For example, the first Poro method cesarean in the USA was performed by Robert Harris in 1881, also on a woman with dwarfism. The first in Australia was performed at Melbourne in 1885 on a woman whose pregnancy was complicated by a cancerous vaginal growth that had completely blocked her vaginal canal. In this case, the mother survived, but the child did not. It wasn't until 1882 that a feasible method of uterine closure was developed. American obstetrician J. Marion Sims as as April would say, developed a silver-based wire for gynecological suturing. It should be noted that he did so by experimenting on enslaved women who had incurred genital injuries when they were raped or experienced violent births. For more on this, check out Medical Bondage by Deirdre Cooper Owens. Okay, so J. Marion Sims developed this wire. Obstetricians Adolf Kerr and Max Sanger developed independent of one another, but at the same time, which is funny how that happens sometimes, um, a method of uterine closure using Sims silver wire as a suture. Silver has antimicrobial properties, so it prevents infection and inflammation even when it's not removed like traditional sutures. This became known as a conservative cesarean as opposed to Poro's more radical cesarean method. Another interesting tidbit, Adolf Kerr recommended a low transverse incision, which is typical today, but few obstetricians recognized its merits until the 20th century. They continued to use a vertical incision down the middle of the abdomen. Now, the Kerr incision is the standard cesarean incision, but only like 100 years after he suggested it. (laughs) (laughs) Typical. Caesarean outcomes improved dramatically during the 1880s. By this time, Lister's antiseptic system and even more effective aseptic techniques, aseptic refers to just having like a clean, um, a clean, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Environment in which you're performing the procedure. Right, like not wearing your street clothes and, you know, like all that kind of thing. Right. So there's antisepsis, which is like when you're spraying carbolic acid on stuff during the procedure, uh-huh. and then asepsis, which just means cleanliness, uh, which were th- these were becoming standard in all surgical settings. Obstetricians also came to realize that they had been waiting too long to initiate a cesarean, and that the mother's blood loss and exhaustion was contributing to that high maternal mortality. They finally felt like the procedure was safe enough to use as something other than a surgical Hail Mary. These less emergent procedures improved maternal outcomes even further. There was also a considerable decrease in violent birth techniques. In 1888, Murdoch Cameron performed a high-risk cesarean at Rotten Row, lying in hospital in Glasgow. I feel like... Is that not the most Scottish thing you've ever heard in your life? Right. I also feel like it's not like the place that you probably want to end up as a pregnant lady. Right. Well, 
Well, lying in hospitals were typically like working exactly class, so. right. So I'm thinking like went, went down to Rotten Row and got sliced open <laughs> by whoever. Yeah, it sounds horrific. yeah, it sounds pretty bad. Yeah. His patient, um, Murdoch Cameron's patient, was a woman with both advanced rickets and dwarfism. Cameron practiced non-intervention early in the labor, which eventually ended in a successful cesarean. He went on to publish a paper about how the all-too-common use of forceps early in delivery resulted in increased maternal mortality if surgical birth was ultimately needed. Decreased interference in early birth continued to become more popular. This was, of course, only temporary, though, because many, or if not all, of those violent birth techniques came back into fashion in the 20th century. I don't know why. It's like, why don't we learn the first time? I don't know. Ugh. So still, many aspects of complicated pregnancy were beyond turn-of-the-century medical science. For example, during the 1880s, some obstetricians in Britain and Ireland, such as Birmingham obstetrician Lawson Tate, favored cesareans as a method of preserving the mother's life when she suffered placenta previa. Placenta previa could cause extensive bleeding, and at a time before safe blood transfusions, hemorrhage could often lead to death. Tate performed cesareans early in the pregnancy, however, when the placenta problems became obvious, so the fetuses did not survive. It wasn't until the 1940s, when blood transfusion was perfected, that both mother and fetus with placenta previa were likely to survive. By that time, women with placenta previa were admitted to the hospital, transfused regularly with blood, and then subjected to a cesarean section at 38 weeks when it was most likely that the fetus would survive. In 1800, cesarean mortality hovered between 75 and 100 percent. By 1900, cesarean maternal mortality had dropped to 10 percent. These improvements are remarkable, and they really made cesarean section a feasible birth option for many. The 20th century is often when histories of the cesarean section truly begin, because that's the period in medical history when cesarean became practical and routine rather than a kind of theoretical last resort, a Hail Mary, as Marissa said. Yes. During the 20th century, we see the return of violent intervention-heavy birthing in the 1920s, Twilight sleep births covered in Sarah's episode in this series, epidurals, spinal blocks, and most importantly, the advent of antibiotics in the 1930s and 1940s, which transformed obstetrics and pediatrics entirely. There's still more to say about cesareans and their role in second wave feminism, the natural birth movement, and appallingly high maternal mortality rates in the contemporary USA, not to mention their historical role in racial health disparities. There's also more than enough out there to do an episode on cesarean in Eastern medicine. I'm not an expert on Eastern medicine, um, which generally centered around China. China has a very old tradition of medicine. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's maybe even one that we could do on decolonizing the cesarean in Africa, Polynesia, and the Americas. So um, though I've given you a preview, I'm sure you can see there's more than enough there for a history of cesarean birth part two and three, maybe even four, I don't know. Um, But it's something to look forward to. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's such a good point. I mean, as you know, anyone who listened to my episode that came out last week knows that, you know, for two roughly one hour podcast episodes about childbirth, like there just is not enough time or space to cover everything. Right. Mm -hmm. Or to even or even to give a good 
indication of the incredible diversity of experiences and mm-hmm. and th- the varying histories of how these things were implemented across time and space and and you know cultures and all of that. So I I think if anything, and again, April's not gonna <laughs> love this, but I think if anything, <laughs> our two episodes really just showed how many more episodes we could do on the topic of birth. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Entirely. And it's like, I'm sure some people might say, well, why don't you start with the story that's less told? You know, you keep saying, right. Like, well, the reason for that is because that's, there's so much less information on them. Um, so we usually start with the story that is most well documented. That doesn't Mm -hmm. mean it's the most important story. It doesn't mean it's, um, the story that needs to be told the most or anything. It means it's the most well-documented right. and oftentimes most useful to educators who we sometimes cater to. So I think that's the reason, you know, um, and I'm an early modernist, so stopping at 1900 feels good to me. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think it works too because things are are so different after the, yeah. you know, during the 20th century when it comes to birth. So I mean, different. Even in my episode, I really only made it into, I mean, I kind of, kind of reached later into the the 50s and 60s with Twilight Birth, but only very minimally, just because sort of in our modern or more modern, I guess, um, experience, birth has changed significantly and even just Mm -hmm. culturally, right? Yeah, even Um, just in the last 20 years, since 2000, there's been a huge change in cesareans. Oh, absolutely. They, like, peaked in 2012 and and have gone down again. But, I mean, there's so much more story to be told that Mm -hmm. it would be a three-hour-long episode. Exactly. And nobody wants that. And I I also (laughs) think that um, when we're telling stories like this, like, I, I mentioned over and over again in my episode, like, how... I just wanted people to know that, like, this is only a history and that there's more to the story. And part of that is, for me, is my brain works very sort of chronologically, not in terms of, not only in terms of history, but also in terms of historiography, right? And so often when I'm doing an episode on, you know, something like, say, birth, my thought is I got, I I really want to go to sort of the origins of how this was first studied, who were the Mm -hmm. first people to, to write on it. And for these topics, I mean, these are topics that, um, you know, a lot of people wouldn't really consider important historical topics, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of our listeners aren't going to have any background in the history of childbirth. And so Mm -hmm. it's hard to tell kind of like the niche history if you don't have this foundational story right the right. one that was if you don't see the niche what the niche histories are right. are arguing yeah. against and i don't mean niche in a negative way i mean just more focused right more focused on particular experiences and stories um and so that's how historiography works right we start with the the judith waltzer lever levitt book that kind of introduces childbirth as a historical subject and then we get this proliferation of other things saying yes and right like this other thing and this mm-hmm. other experience and so um i think that these two episodes might serve as really good sort of foundations for later episodes on you know more specific um stories right no i think that's totally i think that's totally fair and and I think that is also how I think of it. Like, I wanted to get the the classical story, the, right. the story that is most often told out there, and point out some of the issues with it. And then in future episodes, 
were able to kind of say, hey, remember that episode I did on cesareans? Yeah. Well, this is what this person thinks about it, and this is how this person's experience was different, and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes those um, episodes and those stories that, that deserve to be told, it makes them um, more meaningful when mm-hmm. you know when you know what the... I don't know what the word is. When when you know what the um, dominant narrative is, right? It's, yes, it yes. makes it more powerful when you start talking about an alternative narrative. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. definitely. So we basically just went on this defensive rant about. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, I tried to include some of that stuff with the colonial um, story, and I don't normally include things like. Oh my god, stop! Oh, I don't baby. normally. I know. Stop being a jerk. Um. I don't normally uh, look at other blogs and things when I'm researching, but this one caught my attention um, when I was looking into the colonization of cesarean section, and I saw I, I saw many like that one Facebook post I mentioned. I saw many tweets and things about um, very very uncritical mm. like, oh yeah, Ugandan women invented C-section, um, and. Mm-hmm. Once again, not that that's not true, um, but the people who are posting those things don't know for sure that they're true and don't have the sources right. to back it up. And, you know, I think that indigenous African history is super important, and I don't think we should get it wrong, you know. So um, right. that's one of the reasons why I kind of brought up that particular thing, um, because it's something that's, I think being discussed right now is decolonizing Mm -hmm. history and decolonizing the archives and all of that kind of stuff. And I think it's super important. Um, But I think that you can also kind of go in the other direction and misinterpret sources and things like that. Kind of like the the episode you did about um, midwives and witches. Mm -hmm. Remember, you know, you're trying to correct the flawed dominant narrative. Right. um, But you overcorrect you know, yeah. um, I think that that can Definitely. happen sometimes. So I'd love to do an episode on decolonizing the cesarean site or even decolonizing birth. Could Definitely. maybe even, that would be a really great episode. It would. Um, that would be a really interesting episode. Do you have any thoughts about cesarean section more generally, Sarah? Are you horrified? <laughs> um, I, I mean, I actually, I didn't know a lot about the history of cesarean section at all. I had always heard the story about Julius Caesar. Um, and so I was glad to get the, the record set straight for that, certainly. And so I personally learned a lot um, <laughs> that I think I may I may actually even like assign this or offer it as um, sort of additional, you know, additional information for my students, like an additional, what's the word I'm looking for? Supplemental reading? Or supplemental, supplemental, yeah, listening yeah. or whatever. Um, it is, I mean, yeah, it is. it is definitely gross but it didn't bother me as much as I expected it to which is terrible (laughs) because yeah I mean this stuff doesn't I don't even think of it anymore because I read stuff like this all the time and so so does Elizabeth like and you do too really like we just read these horrible things all the time I think for my episode I was really concerned with making sure that I gave lots and lots of you know warning was because Judith Walter Levitt's book really deals with the feelings and experiences of the women who underwent these, underwent these, you know, 
surgeries or, you know, in that case, not surgeries, but, you know, the experience of childbirth. And yours necessarily, because it's a surgical procedure, is much more from the perspective of physicians. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, and also... I, it's from prior to 1900, right. so we often don't have right. the woman's experience and so at all. I found mine much more difficult to read and to record and to write and all that just because it was, you know, you were really getting the raw emotion of women, you know, worrying about what the outcome of their birth would be or re- reflecting back on the, how much pain they were in or, or those types of things. Um, and so it really kind of put me in that perspective Whereas this is like, I don't know, this is like your history of medicine sort of bread and butter. <laughs> yeah, norm- normal, super graphic. Right. <laughs> um, right. Um, yeah. No, I agree. It's It wasn't that hard for, it was hard for me to write because I'm an empath and I kept putting right. myself in that situation. Like, what the yeah. f*** would I do if I was birthing and it was in a primitive time? Right. And, I mean, I would... I don't think I could have, I don't, I would just never have sex right. because I wouldn't want yeah. to get pregnant and I wouldn't want yeah. to have kids because it would be so horrifying. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of women often think like, would I be alive today if uh-huh. I lived 400 years ago, given my oh, birth yeah. experience? Have you ever played that, I mean, like that game? I guess it's not really a game, but like on social media, people will ask that question. Like, what would you have died of if this was in a pre- mm-hmm you know, germ theory, pre-medical science period or whatever. And like the answers of most women is birth because even like one Mm -hmm. thing that today could be considered like a fairly routine thing, right? Like, because it's so Mm -hmm. unshocking to have a C-section or whatever, or to have a baby turned or Or placenta previa even is like not that big of a deal. High blood pressure, preeclamp, like all these things that can be treated, Right. Could one hundred percent have killed you, or or would very likely have killed you in another right. era? So yeah, I mean, um, it's it's very easy to think that, um, like I said in my episode, it's very easy to romanticize the way that women birthed before medical intervention um, mm-hmm. as being like all perfect and great. But that's because we don't spend a lot of time focusing on women who, you know baby got stuck and there was just nothing to be done the women who didn't make it yeah and and some of those women i you know talk about and hear not their personal experience but so much because we don't really have that but Mm -hmm. yeah these women who had to be who were sometimes alive and sometimes conscious of the fact that they were about to sacrifice themselves for right. their kids. Right. Most often they were probably unconscious and sometimes near or, or near death or dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they, the baby was, they knew the baby was in the distress. They knew the mother wasn't going to make it either. And they're mm-hmm. trying to baptize the baby. I just can't, that's just such a dark place yeah. to go. Yeah, absolutely. It's horrible. Well, on that note. Yeah, on that horrible <laughs> note, you're welcome for... Giving you more things to have nightmares about. Yeah. Well, uh, let us know, listeners, what you think and and what stories you want us to tell about birth next, because you seemed really excited about this series. So we want we want your feedback. Right. And Sarah and I have already we've already thought of like four more episodes. So we could just maybe we could give April a vacation and just me and you and Elizabeth can do a birth series. (laughs) What do you think? 
<laughs> and if you really, if you know, listeners, if you really don't want more birth episodes, if this, you know, really squicked you out, then let us know that and we'll kind of try to <laughs> go a different yeah, Or direction. maybe we'll pepper them in into other series yeah. or something. Right. All right. Thanks for tuning in. You can find us at digpodcast.org with our transcripts and uh, show notes. You can also find us at um, Twitter and Facebook, dig underscore history. And you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash digpodcast. Mm-hmm. And don't forget that we have um, resources for teachers on our website, on our uh, For Educators page. And we are constantly in the process of of shining up that page and adding more resources we've got all tons of different lessons that go along with certain podcasts or groups of podcast episodes um so definitely check that out as you are putting together your syllabuses for this uh upcoming semester and if you teach with one of our episodes get in touch and let us know how it goes yeah i'd love to hear that if you're willing you could even share your resources so that we can have a sort of collaborative for other instructors as well that would be yeah, really cool that would be, that would be fantastic all right thanks for listening bye bye go watch Macbeth. some people were like maybe we should use searcher <laughs> oh my god i sound drunk hey oh that was really loud <laughs> hey the 12th century Jewish scholar Maimonides, Maimonides, the 12th century Jewish scholar Maimonides, oh my god, the 12th century Jewish scholar Maimonides wrote that the Romans knew how to perform, I'm going to yeet myself. Having sources are more direct, acknowledging Wenceslaus' cesarean birth directly, obviously, because they're being more direct. Huh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably going to cut that out. Most observers, most observers, oh my God. Trained to make an abdominal decision. A craniotomy. Oh, I said that weird. A craniotomy. The Archdeacon of the Verdun Cathedral, Richard Wasseborg, Antique, oh my God. It would be Ricard. For more on this, check out Medical Bondage by Deirdre Cooper Owens. Hang on, baby talked. Jacques Guillermo. Jacques Guimo. Guimo. Yeah, Guimo. Guimo. Uh, Jacques Guimo's. <laughs> that is how you say it. Okay. 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 Despite the work of Rousset and Guimo. Guimo. <laughs> okay. I'm pulling it together. <laughs> During this experimental time, doctors experimented. Oh my god, duh. For example, during the 1880s. <laughs> the baby's like, derpy, derpy, derpy. Hang on. <laughs> she's at least not unhappy, which is good because she's she's teething. So she's basically just been like, like grunting all day because she's miserable. Um. <laughs>
And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.